If one was looking for a real-life situation to portray the metaphor of not seeing the two-thirds of the iceberg being below the surface, it would be a marriage, and even more so, a political marriage. What goes on inside of a marriage is always a mystery. We all know the stories of the neighbors who have apparently the idyllic marriage that ends in divorce, or the couple that battles incessantly that have been together happily for 40 years. The dynamics, the psychological mechanism are truly a riddle wrapped in an enigma. However, with political marriages and with public figures, we get a better glimpse. After the fact, we have letters, tapes, diaries, and tell-alls that become a part of the public record. In analyzing them, we learn a lot about how the marriage worked, how it shaped the individuals, and in turn, how it may have shaped history. This is what we learn about LBJ and Lady Bird in my guest Betty Boyd Caroli's new book, Lady Bird and Linden. Betty Boyd Caroli is the author of the previous book, First Ladies and the Roosevelt Women. It is my pleasure to welcome Betty Caroli here to talk about Lady Bird and Linden, the hidden story of a marriage that made a president. Betty, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff, for talking with me. Well, it's great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about how uh, Lyndon and Lady Bird first met. Well, that's an interesting story because he was working in Washington. He was an assistant to a congressman in 1934, and he went back to Texas for a visit and dropped in to see an old friend in Austin. And Lady Bird, who was also a friend of the woman, uh, was in the office at the same time. So they met on an afternoon, September 5, 1934, in an office of a friend in in Austin, and Lady Bird had just graduated from college with her two degrees, and two degrees from the University of Texas, which had a certain prestige for a man like Lyndon, who had graduated from a teacher's college, much much less prestigious, pre- prestigious, uh, a few miles south of there. So it was pretty much um, love at first sight. She said she felt the electric going. And he, of course, uh, he had another date that night, but he took her out the next day and spent the next five days with her before he went back to Washington. She says he asked her to marry him that very first day, and she thought he was crazy. What's more impressive about the two degrees she had from the University of Texas was not only that it was more prestigious than what Lyndon had, but for a woman at that point to have two degrees from there was, was pretty unusual. Well, yes, that's certainly true. And one of them was in journalism, which you remember was the same uh, field that Lyndon's mother, Lyndon's mother had actually gone to college, which was fairly unusual. I mean, it wasn't as common then as it is today. And she very much wanted to be a journalist or a writer. She said she wanted to write the great Confederate novel. So the fact that Lady Bird, this woman Lyndon just met, had that degree that his mother had, was an added attraction for sure. When was it clear that Lyndon would would spend his life in politics, and how did Lady Bird take to that idea? Well, that's a good question, because Lyndon was an amazingly erratic person. You see that in the courtship letters, and one of the advantages I had in doing this book was that the letters that they wrote, because after they met and spent five days together, they were separated for about eight weeks. He had to go back to Washington to work, and he didn't return to Texas, didn't see Lady Bird again until Halloween. So it's like seven weeks after he had left her. 
And during that time, they, the only communication, well, they had a few phone calls, but mostly it was letters. And those letters were not available until about two years ago, Valentine's Day of uh, 13. So I was able to read them. And in those letters, you see that he didn't even know whether he was going into politics. He talked about maybe getting a job with General Electric, and maybe he would go to New York, and maybe he would come back to Texas. He was a very undecided young man, and he was secretive. I mean, the same secretiveness that we came to know later in his presidency was certainly true in those courtship letters, because he, would, he wouldn't write her for a while, and she, said, she would write and say, why don't you tell me what's going on? Are you really thinking about coming back to Texas? Do you think it might be New York? And he'd say, oh, I'm not going to write you that now, fearing the outcome as I do. Or sometimes he'd say, I wrote you a long letter, but I tore it up before I sent it. So she knew early on that he was a man who liked to keep his own judgment to himself without sharing it with her or anyone else. How much of it was keeping his own judgment to himself, and how much of it was was Lyndon Johnson not knowing what he was going to do next, going to this erratic nature that you were talking about? Yes, I think that's true. You remember that uh, soon after they met, when he got back to Washington, he enrolled in law school, went a few classes, and decided that wasn't for him. So he was, he was definitely an undecided young man. To what extent was she concerned about that sense of, of undecidedness, about what might have been erratic, what might have been secrecy? Well, she's an amazingly centered person who seems to have been upset by nothing, and I think that's what attracted him to her because he he could he had his highs and lows, and she she just took it all in stride. She uh, even when he didn't write her for a while, I mean, a while is you know like two or three days. They they really wrote a lot of letters, sometimes two in one day. Nothing really. Um, upset her and she would she wrote back in one letter uh he had been very uh, down in the dumps you know because he'd been begging her to marry him immediately and then in one letter he says oh things are going so badly i think we're going to have to wait four or five years no matter how low he got no matter how depressed he talks about being in bed for several days he thinks he has the flu he wishes she were in washington to nurse him and and help him uh, to climb he says to get where he wants to go. Nothing seemed to to upset her. She wrote in one letter, um, I think it's presumptuous. Actually, she misspelled that. The only word she misspelled, you know, she was a much better writer than Lyndon was, both in vocabulary and, and just the substance of the letters. But she said, I think it's presumptuous to fuss with someone you love. So she signaled very early on that no matter how erratic he was, no matter how nasty he could get, and he got kind of nasty in some of those letters when she didn't write him quite as quickly as he thought. You know, they had mail delivery twice a day, and if he didn't get a mail, a letter in the morning mail from her, he was he was writing her and saying, you've forgotten all about me, what kind of person are you? He could be very nasty. Nothing upset Ladybird. What does this tell us? What insight does this give us into Johnson himself in terms of his depression, in terms of almost kind of bipolar behavior? Well, she never used the word, the term bipolar, and I guess the term more in their time was manic depressive. She never used that to describe Lyndon, but certainly many of his aides did. Uh, Bill Moyers talks about it. Um, Richard Goodwin wrote about it. Richard Goodwin, his speech writer, was so concerned he went to a psychiatrist and said, what's going on with this guy? Uh, George Reedy talked about it. George Reedy, Lyndon's press secretary, said, 
Lyndon could start at the top of the stairs in a good mood and arrive at the bottom in a bad mood. So many of them talked about his, his extreme mood changes. But what Lady Bird wrote in her unpublished diary, and that also became available while I was working on this book, because she published that big 800-page diary after she left the White House, but that was only about an eighth of what she'd actually recorded. And we'd been waiting to see what she said in that, and it filled in a lot of the gaps. Anyway, in the unpublished diary, she definitely sees his mood slings, and she'll say, oh, he's down in the dumps today, and then maybe two days later, oh, everything's looking brighter today, Lyndon seems on top of the world. And then, she, and she admitted she didn't know what caused these mood swings. She said, well, I remember in one case, she said, he's really happy today, and I don't know what sprung him, I guess, <laughs> from his bad mood. So it was a nice line, and clearly she was aware of it. But I, don't, I could not find an example of where she labeled him uh, bipolar or manic depressive. What was the appeal for her early on? We understand, it's easier to understand, I think, what, what he saw in her. What was the appeal to her? Well, remember Lady Bird had grown up in a very provincial setting, although she was definitely the richest little girl in town. So she had a checking account when she was 13. She had her own car when she was 13. She was a very privileged young woman. One woman I interviewed in her hometown who knew her as in her youth said, you know, Lady Bird had her own car when my family didn't even have a car. So she grew up very privileged, and you might think that she thought she had everything. But she was very ambitious to get out of there and to see the world. And she, as soon as she could, when she graduated from the local high school at 15, she went away uh, to Dallas uh, to an, a very elite boarding school for two years and then enrolled at the University of Texas and said that one of the things she wanted to do was to get a job that would take her to someplace exciting like Hawaii and Alaska. <laughs> So she clearly was dating men that would take her to some place like that if she couldn't go um, on her own job. Uh, the view of Lady Bird as this unattractive wallflower that nobody wanted to date is just wrong. I mean, she was not only dating a lot, she was dating the campus leaders, the president of the student body, uh, a man who became then a late, later a, a, a famous journalist. So she was she was after an ambitious man, and, and reportedly she dropped the boyfriends that wouldn't amount to much. That was her phrase. So I think she was an ambitious person, and she saw in Lyndon, there are many examples of her pointing out that he's a young man who knows he will get someplace important. I think in one case, she'd gone away to a football game, and we're talking 1934, right? And he tracked her down with a person-to-person -person call. And she said, how did you ever find me in Dallas, this was. But then she said, I guess you're a man who usually gets what he wants, aren't you? It's interesting because with all the fits and starts for Johnson, and as we talked about before, early on he was really unsure where he was going. The one thing that was consistent was his ambition for whatever it was that he was going to do. Yes, he was a very um, ambitious young man, although I think we need to remember that in the, when he graduated from high school at 15, he had those two years when he went, left, the, the, left Texas and went with some other um, youths his age to L.A. and worked at sort of menial jobs like uh, elevator operator and, and so forth, much to the concern of his mother, who wanted him to go to college. He came back and worked for a year or so in construction in Texas. So there was a period after high school when also he was uncertain um, how he was going to get um, 
any place important. Um, his uh, his siblings, and remember he had four, he was the oldest of five children in that family, and they all said from an early age he was the bossy sort of person who could uh, assign jobs to them so that he could get out of them. So yes, there was ambition, but there was also a, a bit of a hiccup there right after high school. Talk a little bit about politics and how Lady Bird felt about that. Well, there's that famous letter that's often cited that she wrote, Lyndon, during the courtship years when she didn't know what his his plans were. And she said, please tell me what you're planning to do. I hope it's not politics. Uh, I would really hate for it to be politics. And that is so out of context, context, I think, because she was... She was interested in important ideas and in politics. At the University of Texas, she would walk over on a, an afternoon when she didn't have a class and sit in to, uh, and hear uh, debates in the legislature. In her high school essays, which I was able to get from the, the Historical Society there in Harrison County, she talks about um, uh, her ideas on international affairs and politics. In the letters that she wrote uh, to Lyndon during the courtship years, she talks about, uh, one of them says, do you like to debate economics and politics ad infinitum the way I do? So she was a woman with um, a big interest in ideas and political ideas. So I think to center on that one little comment, I hope it's not politics, doesn't fit with the rest of the story. And once politics became a reality for them, how did she take to it? Well, that's what I uh, discovered in the in the research for this book. From remember, they married as we said before. There was that period they were separated. He came back on Halloween, but she had already planned a trip to visit her aunt in Georgia, so she went away for a few days. But he kept phoning her and sending flowers. And when she got back, um, he he said, "Okay, marry me now or never." And that was on Saturday morning, November seventeenth, nineteen thirty-four. And they got in the car and started driving from her home, which was up in the sort of northeast of Texas, towards San Antonio. And they got married that night. So she didn't even know she was for sure getting married when she got in the car. But she said in her in one of her interviews, she said, I always thought I could get out earlier if I changed my mind. So they got married, had a short honeymoon. And by New Year's Eve, in other words, the end of December, just, uh, I mean, uh, just a few weeks later, they were back in Washington where Lyndon had the job as a congressional assistant, an assistant to a congressman from Texas. And she got into the whole thing right away. They lived in Washington from then on part of every year, except for about an 18-month period when they were back in Texas. What did she think of Washington? Well, she took to it like uh, a duck to water. <laughs> she said she was interested in meeting some of the fascinating characters of the New Deal, and she started inviting other congressmen to her house for dinner, even though she couldn't cook very well, because she had grown up in a family where she never had to sweep a floor or cook a meal. But she did the best she could. She got herself a cookbook. I think Lyndon actually bought her the cookbook. And she started inviting people over. She started going to the homes of people who were very important in Washington at that time, and and became very helpful to the Johnsons later. She was a wonderful networker, and everybody liked her. You know, Lyndon could get on people's nerves a little bit, talking too much, talking a little bit too much about himself. But uh, Lady Bird pleased everybody. And she says in one of her interviews that he would take her to dinners where no other women were present because he knew that she was such a favorite with his friends. Everybody liked Lady Bird. 
How much did he come to rely on her for advice? Well, of course, that's a, a difficult question. She talks about a few cases where she thought she had made a difference. Um, she talks in her unpublished diary about he would wake her up at uh, 3 or 4 in the morning, or they would both wake up and talk and for the rest of the morning, so they got little sleep, about the upcoming election, what they should do, how they should run the campaign. And the one instance that she singles out as being one in which she actually changed what he did was the uh, time it came, when time came to nominate a candidate for the 1964 election. Remember, Lyndon had become president uh, at the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy in November of 63, so he'd been in office about nine months. But there's an upcoming election in November of 64. And today we might think, oh, for sure, Lyndon planned to run, but that wasn't at all sure. Um, the Republicans had nominated Barry Goldwater in July, and now it was time for the Democrats in uh, Atlantic City to nominate their candidate. And Lyndon Johnson was fed up with everything. He was beginning to get criticism about Vietnam. He had a problem with the seating of one delegation at the at the convention, and he he refused to go up from Washington. He was in Washington. He, he refused to go to Atlantic City from Washington. He stayed in the White House, and Lady Bird describes how um, he just pulled down the shades and went to bed and pulled the covers over his head. And his assistants, one of them already in Atlantic City, phoned back to talk to the press secretary, who was trying to figure out what was happening. And they both decided they had a real problem, that Lyndon Johnson might not go to that very important convention. And then what, what might happen? So Jenkins, Walter Jenkins, the chief aide to Lyndon Johnson, who was up in Atlantic City, did what other people did when they had a problem with Lyndon. He went to Lady Bird. And she did what she often did. She wrote him a letter just full of love and concern, but also kind of goading him into running, saying, if you drop out now, you would be uh, pleasing your enemies and disappointing your friends. And you're as good as any of the 35 who went before you and, and then signed it with lots of love and so forth and left it on the table for him to read. And then she talks about how she went out walking on the south lawn of the White House. And he read the letter and went to the convention and was nominated and won in the biggest landslide up to that time. So she singled out that particular time. She said she never found any hours harder than those that day when she had to decide how to encourage Lyndon to run. How did she feel about him taking the vice presidential nomination in 1960? Well, 1960 was a difficult time for the Johnsons. Remember, uh, he had been serving in the Senate for now, what, 12 years? And uh, time came at the nominating convention in L.A. Uh, John F. Kennedy was nominated, and the Johnsons thought they were ready to pack up and go home. But that famous phone call came asking Lyndon to run. And the, all, there are many accounts of that, and they don't always agree. Right. But I think uh, the of what happened at the beginning, I think she didn't want him to take the nomination. Both the Johnsons felt that 
John Kennedy was too young for the presidency. He was too inexperienced. It wasn't that they didn't like him. They just thought he should wait his turn. So at the beginning, she opposed it. But later, both, I think, Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson recognized the value that a Southerner could be on that ticket. And she got into that campaign working like her life depended on it. I mean, she was... Uh, giving speeches with Rose Kennedy, because remember, Jackie Kennedy sort of withdrew from the campaign because she was pregnant. But Rose Kennedy and Lady Bird went out on the speaking trail, and Lady Bird gave so many uh, receptions all across Texas because Texas was a very important state to win for the Democrats in 1960, greeting hundreds of people. And after the election was over, uh, Robert Kennedy is reported to have said that Lady Bird won Texas for us. Given the erratic nature of Lyndon Johnson's personality, talk about the days after the Kennedy assassination and the assumption of the presidency by Lyndon Johnson and how Lady Bird dealt with that and dealt with Lyndon. Well, those days after the assassination were were really difficult for everybody. Um, Lyndon Johnson, who seems to have just sort of wallowed in the vice presidency, everybody said he used those were the worst years of his life. He put on a lot of weight. He was grumpy. He he felt he wasn't uh, effective in the job. He was often sent off on foreign missions. So the vice presidency had been a bad, a very bad time for him. Not for Lady Bird. She loved those foreign trips. She said it was like being set down in the middle of the National Geographic when she got to. To, to one of the African countries that she had never visited before. So the vice presidency had been difficult, but everybody says, I think, that Lyndon Johnson took on the presidency with considerable decisiveness and uh, immediately, remember, uh, introduced two bills that he thought would be extremely important, the tax bill and the uh, civil rights bill. And Lady Bird pitched right in. I mean, she said that she felt like she was on stage for a part she never rehearsed. But in fact, no woman ever came to that job better prepared because she knew all the journalists by first name in Washington. She knew the wives of congressmen and senators because she had been a member of their groups, the, the congressional wives and then the Senate wives for, what, you know, 30 years or something. And she, she knew her way around Washington in many ways. So she immediately pitched in. And one of the things that I think people forget is that she was extremely helpful in grooming congressmen to vote for the legislation that Lyndon wanted, the tax bill and the civil rights bill. You know, most presidents coming into that job at the beginning of the year, they give a couple big receptions for the congressmen and the senators. But the Johnsons decided they wanted to do something more personal, more intimate. So they had like a dozen small receptions for 12 or 15 people each so that they could, you know, greet them warmly and and feed them and give them drinks. And then Lyndon would take the congressmen and senators present off to a, another room to, to smooth them up. And Lady Bird would take the spouses upstairs for a view of the second floor of the White House. Most of them, and she knew this very well, most congressional wives had never seen the second floor because most first ladies uh, had some reservations, certainly Jackie Kennedy did, about letting people march through the private quarters, you know, and letting people see how they live. But Lady Bird opened up the second floor and took them upstairs. So they, she was very important in grooming not only the journalists to write good stories about the um, 
the Johnsons, but also the, the uh, uh, congressmen and women and the senators to vote for whatever Lyndon wanted. Where was she on the issue of civil rights? Well, on civil rights, she certainly um, supported Lyndon's uh, proposals on civil rights. But everybody I interviewed said that she came from a part of the country and she was con- that was considerably behind Lyndon. And that um, she, and I found this also in her diary, she felt Lyndon was moving too fast, that he wouldn't be able to get what he wanted in that 1964 act or the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I remember one uh, entry in her unpublished diary. He'd given a fairly strong speech in the South, and she said, well, I guess you need to say it where it needs to be said, but I really felt he came on a little too strong tonight. So she was a little wary of how fast he was moving on civil rights. Did she try and slow him down? Oh, I, I, I never heard that. No, I never heard that she slowed him down. She just watched from the sidelines. And, and as the pressure mounted with respect to Vietnam that ultimately led to his decision not to run again, talk about the, the relationship between the two of them during that period. Well, certainly the, the last years in the White House were terrible. She said the first years were wine and roses. But the last years were pure hell. And, of course, she was talking about Vietnam. I would disagree, though, uh, with the view that it was Vietnam that forced him out of the presidency or or forced him not to run. Uh, It certainly was a factor. But she had said from 1964, I mean, this is... In, in print, the, uh, she in her diary, she had said that she thought he should run in 64, but definitely not in 68, because by then he would have um, slowed down. She thought that his health probably wouldn't... Remember, he had that big heart attack, major heart attack in 1955. She thought that it would be time in 68 for them to retire to the ranch and enjoy themselves. And when it came time to discuss that decision later in 1967, she she spoke out really strongly that she did not want another campaign, and she didn't want to ask anybody for anything, and she had said exactly when he should announce that he wasn't going to run, and that was February or March of 1968, which is exactly when he did announce March, the last day of March in 1968. But on his depression in the uh, on Vietnam. Uh, I think she dealt with that the way she dealt with many of his uh, deep slumps in mood. She tried to encourage him to put one foot in front of the other. She surrounded him with people that made him feel good. Uh, The same people, again and again, you'll see if you look at their diaries, are invited to Sunday lunch, to Camp David for a weekend. She surrounded him with people that made him feel good made him feel stronger and better. And nobody, she didn't want anybody mentioning Vietnam or gallbladder surgery or some of the other bad topics that came up during that period. So it was a very difficult time. And she herself said that uh, she, she could never see a clear path on Vietnam. And she said it was like swimming upstream. You know, other problems like education and poverty, those were problems you could attack because you knew what the goal was. But in Vietnam, she said there was no clear. It was like swimming upstream and no clear land in sight. Later, she is on record in a way that makes me think that she might have infiltrated, as she sometimes said, on the topic, because she seems to have indicated that 
she felt that there had not been a clear mandate to to go into Vietnam or to stay. She said, if you're going to go to war, it needs to be for a clear mandate, like uh, Pearl Harbor or something like that. And later there was a discussion with the editor who worked with Lyndon on his memoirs, and he concluded that she had probably uh, suggested at least to Lyndon that the path he was taking on Vietnam needed to be altered. At the end of this process, when you got to the end of all of your research and all of your work, what, what did you come away with understanding in terms of political marriages in general and the partnership between Lady Bird and Lyndon? Well, political marriages, like most marriages, are, are teamwork. And I, I certainly would never say that Lady Bird was the power behind the throne. I, that implies that she was manipulating Lyndon, and I don't think anybody manipulated Lyndon Johnson. He had some very strong views of his own. But she was certainly part of the team. And, you know, I think a good way to look at it is, is that there's a book out called The Powers of Two about how two people working together, it can be the Wright brothers uh, inventing an airplane mm -hmm. or uh, songwriters working on a song, that two people working together amount to much more than the two individuals. And she said exactly that more than once. She said, we're worth a lot more together than we are separate. So that's the way I see that political marriage as one that he really needed her. He needed her people-pleasing skills, her networking, her, her, uh, her solidness, her, her ability to stay centered on a subject. Um, he needed her, and she needed him to achieve what few women had the opportunity to achieve, to be at the, the, the center of uh, political decisions in the nation. Betty Boyd Caroli. The book is Lady Bird and Linden, The Hidden Story of a Marriage That Made a President. Betty, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thanks for talking with me. Thank you.